Well, last week there was a news piece that was published that went inside the largely hidden world of dun, 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 Facebook content moderators. I didn't even know these things existed until I read this news article. These are outsourced groups of call center-like locations in which around roughly 15,000 employees sit all day long, every day, cycling through content on the world's largest social media platform. Now, some of you immediately are thinking, what a great job. And if you are, you're probably under the age of 25. You're thinking, man, I want to do that. But these folks' job, their only job is to censor what is considered violent and exploitative content. And I would not recommend looking up this article as it discusses the disgusting posts that they have to remove. But it does largely uncover the beast that is social media. And for that fact, I was pleased to view it. Within the article, my eye was caught by something that was said. Uh, It was especially drawn to where the moderators are given a, quote, source of enforcement, unquote. It was for their decisions to moderate content. It's a document called, and I quote, the community guidelines, end quote. I find it somewhat ironic that in the ambiguous and self-serving world of online self-promotion, even Facebook has found that it needs standards in order to exist. It needs rules. I want to read to you one section of that article, and I want you to notice what parallel this author uses to describe their community guidelines. One reason moderators struggle to hit their accuracy target is that for any given policy enforcement decision, they have several sources of truth to consider. The canonical source for enforcement is Facebook's public community guidelines, which consists of two sets of documents, the publicly posted ones and the longer internal guidelines, which offer more granular detail on complex issues. These documents are further augmented by a 15,000-word secondary document called, quote-unquote, Known Questions, which offers additional commentary and guidance on thorny questions of moderation, a kind of Talmud to the Community Guidelines Torah. Now, in the mind of this writer, the perfect metaphor to which he can compare these community guidelines is the Torah the law and instruction of God, and the later Talmudic writings, which are commentaries on what was originally intended in the Torah. Dear brothers and sisters, we live in a world that refuses to submit to the law of our Creator God to such an extent that many people desire the anarchistic notion of lawlessness over submission. And yet, what do we end up doing? We create other laws to take their place. And the only difference is that the laws we create are not for the common good, but often for our own personal benefit. In fact, the only reason Facebook was pushed to create these laws and rules was the threat of people leaving Facebook and them losing money. It's self-serving. It's not for the common good. Hypocrisy reigns supreme when it comes to humanity's view of the law. And we will ignore commands of righteousness and justice unless it upsets us, at which point we will take on the self-righteous position of judge, jury, and ultimately God. Think with me of Hollywood right now. One of the biggest um, providers of sexually explicit content. And yet who right now is the biggest judge and jury about the sexuality of the United States? Hollywood itself. 
As we come to the detailed section of law in Deuteronomy this morning, we must recognize that humanity's view of the law, and even my own, your own, is very twisted. It's innate to the human condition and the human desire for thriving relationships that laws exist and be enforced. And yet, we fight tooth and nail against the most righteous, just, and true law ever given to mankind. We want to create our own idea of right and wrong rather than following the Lord's commands. And so as a pastor, I'm heartbroken when I see the outcome of what most Christians understand as interpreting the law of God. Often it's just as twisted. Because often what happens is we end up with one of two false understandings of the law. And I'm going to give those to you now. I've shared this with you before, but I find that it needs to be repeated often. The first one is what's called Pelagianism. Uh, Pelagian was uh, a heretic back in the day, and they named this heresy after him. And another one is called antinomianism. You can write them both down. Pelagianism, uh, it's pretty complicated, but the basis of it, the basics of it, is that original sin did not taint us. And so we can still choose wrong and right within ourselves. We just need to have more laws to enforce it. And so we build these complex legalistic structures of what makes a Christian. In the political realm, this would be the liberal point of view. More laws, more government enforcement, and we will finally become a good nation full of good people, right? Uh, Then you also have antinomianism, and this is a rejection of the law completely. And in Christian theology, it's a view that when we say that faith is all that is necessary, that means that we can throw out the idea of any kind of law. If this is also wrong, in the political realm, this would be considered conservatism. The less laws we have, uh, the less uh, rule we can just expect people to be responsible, the better, right? Um, And this is what we as humans start to do with the law. But unfortunately, take these words of John, for example, who when giving a definition of sin wrote this. He said, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Both of these are what the world believes. Legalism or anarchy. And this is often what is found in Christianity. In our rigidity, we move to one of these two poles. We say either all the law is gone because of faith, or we need to enforce more law. And you could pick a denomination and insert it into either one based upon your experiences. And so I believe that it's of absolute necessity for the church to equip disciples of Jesus Christ with a basic ability to understand and apply the law of God in a way that is neither anarchistic nor legalistic. And so today, I'm going to take our text from Deuteronomy 12, and we're going to use it as kind of a training tool. We're going to look at it and see what it says, but we're also going to use it as a training tool for this purpose, to understand and apply the law of God. And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to understand and apply the law of God. And you'll see why I'm doing this once we get into it. We've come to the fourth part of Deuteronomy that is patterned after, remember, it's patterned after a treaty covenant between a conquering king and the people that he's conquered. We've read through the introduction of both parties, the history of their relationship. We've read through the summary of the laws. And now we find ourselves in this section that will go from chapter 12 all the way through chapter 27 that speaks of the detail of the law. Now, these are just... Uh, certain pieces that Moses has decided to include in here and the scribes decided to include in here. It is not the full law, but it's certain choices of the law to show the detail behind it. 
And so we're going to start this morning just by reading the section that we're in, Deuteronomy 12, 15 through 18. Let's take a look there. Starting in verse 15, it says, However, you may slaughter and eat meat within any of your towns as much as you desire, according to the blessing of the Lord your God that he has given you. The unclean and the clean may eat of it, as of the gazelle and as of the deer. Yummy, gazelle. Mm. Only you shall not eat the blood. You shall pour it out on the earth like water. You may not eat within your towns the tithe of your grain or of your wine or of your oil or of the firstborn of your herd of your flock or any of your vow offerings that you vow or your freewill offerings or the contribution that you present. But you shall eat them before the Lord your God in the place that the Lord your God will choose. You and your son and your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, and the Levite who is within your towns. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God in all that you undertake. Take care that you do not neglect the Levite as long as you live in your land. When the Lord your God enlarges your territory as he has promised you, and you say, I will eat meat. That's what we say sometimes. I will eat meat. Because you crave meat, you may eat meat whenever you desire. All the carnivores in the room said a hearty amen. If the place that the Lord your God will choose to put his name there is too far from you, then you may kill any of your herd or your flock which the Lord has given you as I have commanded you. And you may eat within your towns whenever you desire. Just as the gazelle or the deer is eaten, so you may eat of it. The unclean and the clean alike may eat of it. Only be sure that you do not eat the blood, for the blood is the life, and you shall not eat the life with the flesh. You shall not eat it, you shall pour it out on the earth like water. You shall not eat it, that all may go well with you and with your children after you, when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. But the holy things that, that are due from you, and your vow offerings, you shall take, and you shall go to the place that the Lord will choose. And offer your burnt offerings, the flesh and the blood, on the altar of the Lord your God. The blood of your sacrifices shall be poured out on the altar of the Lord your God, but the flesh you may eat. Be careful to obey all these words that I command you, that it may go well with you and with your children, with you, after you, forever, when you do what is good and right in the sight of the Lord. Now, if I were teaching a class on homiletics or hermeneutics, how to interpret the Bible or how to teach the Bible, I can guarantee that if I wanted to put my class through pain, this would be the choice of text I would have assigned to them, right? We read this and we think, what on earth does this have to do with anything? And what does it have to do with me? This is not a text that a pastor would generally say, awesome, I'm excited to teach this on a Sunday morning. And I have to admit to you that when I read through this, I usually read through the next week's teaching on Sunday evening. When I read through this last Sunday evening, I sighed really loud. (laughs) All right, here we go. Now that was simply because of my own sinfulness. I was immediately convicted as I thought about what the psalmist's view of the law was. Oh Lord, how I love your law. I meditate on it day and night. I was convicted when I thought of Jesus' view of the law. And when I read through this, I think, Lord, there is a distance between me and what this says that I can't seem to overcome. I need your Holy Spirit. But this section of law, however, it doesn't get much press because it's not that interesting. I mean, how many of you, reading through this, you're immediately like, man, I feel closer to Jesus. Anyone? Right? No. And so what is our usual habit, dear church? Be honest with me. What would you usually do if you were reading this in your daily devotion? You'd skip it or skim it or not read it, right? Yeah, okay, that was kind of skip it. Or fall asleep while you're reading it, right? 
And wake up with hope that the Holy Spirit would imbibe you with his zeal to live the day out regardless of what you read. Right? This is how we approach the law. We think it's not for us. Chapter 12 started with this amazing discussion about the place that we are supposed to go and worship, the place where the Lord places his name. But then we get to this. And so honestly, when you read most commentaries, dear church, there are probably two lines on this section that we just read. But I think if we do that, we miss the truth of what Scripture says. If we take the law and interpret it as antinomians, that we don't need it, or we take it as Pelagians and say, great, we got to start pouring out blood every time we cook a steak, uh, we're going to miss the point of this. And yet, Paul told Timothy, in his second letter to him, he said, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I've heard it said by many pastors, oh, just eat the meat and spit out the bones of Scripture. You don't need to worry about this stuff, right? But here's the problem. Where does that stop? And how quickly do we fall into buffet Christianity where we're picking what we want and putting the rest back? And so we need to understand this. And that's my hope for us today is that we take a look at this. And today's text will help us to have an example of how to understand and apply even the texts that seem the most odd and removed from our contemporary circumstance. And so for the first thing that we see today, I want you to write down this. Understanding the law requires that we ground ourselves in the full narrative of Scripture. Understanding the law requires that we ground ourselves in the full narrative of Scripture. If we take this passage out of context and without the background of blood sacrifice from the rest of Scripture, we would again twist the meaning of the passage or lay it down and not read it. But dear brothers and sisters, if you become familiar with the story of the Bible and read that story over and over and over and over, you'll be able to start to see threads that you did not see before. It saddens me when I hear a Christian say, yeah, you know, I've read the Bible a couple of times. Now I'm just trying to put it into action. Well, guys, you're missing the point. The whole point of the Bible is that you meditate on it day and night, all the time, and not just certain pieces. Again, another thing that breaks my heart as a pastor is when I meet someone who's been a Christian for decades, and I say to them, oh, you know, go to the book of, I don't know, Obadiah or Malachi, and they go, is that even in here? Where is that? Let me find it. You've never read it? Oh, man, there's such a treasure trove of riches in the Minor Prophets, the section that most of us skip over, right? Now make sure and hear me, it's not that you would become familiar with only isolated stories in the Bible, but that you would become familiar with the one story of the Bible, the ongoing redemptive narrative. You see, the background of animal sacrifice and the point of the sacrificial system was to tell a story and to point to a greater reality. It was to tell the story of mankind's rebellion and God's undying love and pursuit of reconciliation with us in spite of our sin. It served as a commentary on the necessity of something needed to atone for our sin and to pay the penalty for what we have done so that reconciliation with God could be granted. And we can see this story if we are acquainted with Scripture. And all you got to do, as I often do, is go back to the beginning and start thinking about connection points. Think with me about the first animal sacrifice that was ever needed. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve had been given the breath of life. This is Genesis 2, Genesis 2.7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the, what are those words there? 
breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And they inhabited the garden with animals who also had this breath of life. Genesis 1.30 says, And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. Adam and Eve were different in that they were made in God's image and were given language to be able to express the truth of God. And thus far in the garden, this idea of the breath of life, uh, it, it meant something, right? Question for you, so far in the story, just in Genesis 1 and 2, was mankind acquainted with death? Was mankind acquainted with blood? No. You see, blood has to stay in you to have the breath of life. We all know this even in our scientifically advanced 2019, right? You lose blood, too much blood, and the breath of life goes out. But then you know the story. Adam and Eve disobeyed God and rebelled against his gracious command. And the Bible says that their eyes were opened and they saw that they were naked. Shame filled them, a core piece of the human condition in the midst of original sin. And what God did to help them cover their shame was he acted as a priest, sacrificing an animal so that their sin might be covered. Look at what it says in Genesis 3.21. And the Lord God, and in your Bible, that L-O-R-D will be capitalized. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. An animal had to be killed. Blood had to be sacrificed. And this storyline was associated with blood from here on out in Scripture. Blood, as I said, represents life, and when it is exposed or removed from a body, it represents death. Think what God said to Cain in Genesis 4.10. And the Lord said, what have you done, Cain? Remember, Cain killed his brother out of jealousy and hatred and violence. He says, what have you done? The voice of your brother's, what's that word there? Blood is crying out to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. Blood and life are interchangeable. And so there is this idea of a solemnness or a reverence around blood because there was a seriousness about life and death. Think about it. It's almost impossible to grasp. But think about being the first human, not understanding death, and then suddenly death is in your midst. Would you be solemn about it? Think about the first time you ever had to be confronted by someone's funeral or death, someone you loved. It's a shocking thing to the human psyche. From the garden, we go forward to Genesis 9 and Noah. And for some reason, we don't know why, but God gives man the ability to kill and eat animals at this point. Let me read to you from Genesis 9, 1 through 6. It says, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man." From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Now the easiest answer is because everything was flooded and wiped out, it was very hard to eat vegetation at that point. And so God was still providing nutrition for his people through meat. It's the easiest answer. We don't know if that's the right one. But here he gives them the understanding that they can eat meat. But blood is still very important. 
He recognizes this as a concession, and so he still enforces the reverence of blood through human life. There's still a respect for life and an understanding of the effect of sin and death. Now fast forward, and Israel became the group of people that used blood of a lamb to put on their doorposts to gain life when the spirit of death passed over. You see, when meat was consumed, there was to be a solemnity, a solemnness, and a sacred reverence that an animal died so that life might be gained. One life for another. There was a recognition that death was not the goal, but life itself. Death was an unfortunate consequence of our sin. And so the law that was given to the Israelites when they built the tabernacle reflected this storyline. It's like lots of traditions that we have. We just forget why we do them. Now, it was there at the tabernacle that the people of Israel were to solemnly remember the sin of mankind that separated them from God. It was also there that they were to celebrate as a community the fact that God had chosen them for covenant relationship. And he'd given them this sacrificial system so that their sin might be cleansed as a way of staying in living relationship with him. And so when someone brought an animal to be sacrificed, it was to be cooked and served and given to the Levitical priests and the people so that they might feast together in unity and rejoice together in the goodness of God. It was a small but sure reflection of God's plan to rejoin man to God himself and to one another in covenant relationship. And understanding the law requires us to understand the biblical theology and the storyline of sacrifice. And guys, I just read you from the Bible. I didn't bring out any huge theological commentaries. I didn't read from any massive theologian minds. I simply walked you through Scripture, which you can become acquainted with. If you read Scripture, you'll understand the themes that will allow you to understand the law. And as we will see in a bit, that biblical storyline will eventually continue forward and point us to understand more about Jesus Christ. Well, secondly, though, not only do we, uh, in order to understand the law, need to be grounded in biblical narrative, but secondly, you can write down, understanding the law requires that we also first know God's character. We also first know God's character. Now, obviously, we read the Bible to understand God's character, but especially with the law, we must understand that the law is not first and foremost. The law doesn't tell us what God's character is necessarily. We'll see that it does in a sense. But more so, God's character informs what the law is. And throughout Deuteronomy thus far, I've continuously pointed us back to Exodus 34. Guys, you should memorize this. Exodus 34, 6 and 7. If you want to know the attributes of God, go here. I'm amazed at how many really smart, really smart pastors and theologians. Man, they can tell you everything about the omnipotence of God and the omniscience of God and the immutability of God. And I'll ask them, guys, where are those words? Obviously, those things are pictured in Scripture, but you want to know God's character, go here, because this is what God said about himself. He didn't call himself omniscient. He didn't call himself immutable. He didn't call himself omnipotent. He called himself what? Merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Is that a good God or what? I can't personally understand immutability to the fullness That I can understand. Our God is good and loving and passionate and merciful. 
He has steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty because he's a holy God and he's a just God. And so he visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation if there's not repentance. This is one of the most quoted sections of Scripture by Scripture in the Old Testament. And this is where Yahweh speaks to Moses about his character. And notice what he begins with, merciful and gracious. Often what we see when we hear the rules and commands of God, we see a despot, a tyrant. We see our authoritarian abusive father, or maybe the abusive coach or an abusive pastor. Someone who's simply enforcing their rules on us just to have power. But the reality of God's law is that these commands proceed forth from his character to show his holiness, his glory, and therefore our good. So to understand the law, we must also understand his character. What I believe the primary meaning of our text today is showing us. If you read Deuteronomy 12, 15 through 28, what it's showing us is that God is compassionate, merciful, and gracious to his people. And while he adjusts his law depending on the point in time of his redemptive plan, his character never changes. That's the thing I was referring to, his immutability. God never changes. His laws will be adjusted, as we'll see in a second, but his character in the midst of them never is. He's immutable, unchangeable. And to show you this, we have to unpack a bit more Scripture using our first point, looking at the themes of Scripture. As we discussed last week in the end of chapter 11 and the beginning of chapter 12 here in Deuteronomy, we saw that a single place was chosen by the Lord upon which he would place his name. And that single place, as we talked about last week, was Jesus Christ. From Jesus, the pouring out of the Spirit into his church. Jesus is the way by which we can seek Yahweh, the Lord. And as a result, Christ in his grace provided through his Spirit a tangible place where we can practice our unity with Christ himself and his people within the church that bears his name. But as New Covenant believers, we see this truth being developed throughout Scripture. But to the Israelites that were standing there hearing Moses on the east side of the Jordan, they didn't know all the rest of the future. They had simply the understanding before them. For them, they would have looked to the tabernacle and then later the temple as this one place that Deuteronomy 12 and Deuteronomy 11 speak of. And when it came to the laws around sacrifices, God had already given them rules to follow. And seemingly, Deuteronomy 12, what we just read earlier, it actually seems to go against the laws they were already given. Let me show you what I mean. Go with me to Leviticus, another one of your favorite books that I'm sure you read all the time. Go to Leviticus 17. Some of you can remember when we went through Leviticus as a church. See, I like to do all the hard books first in the first couple decades of the church, and then we get to the nice, easy books towards the end. Just kidding. Leviticus 17. Take a look at verse 1 there. And this section here you'll see was probably sitting in the minds of the people as they're standing there listening to Moses give a seemingly contradictory set of laws about sacrifice. Let's see what it says here. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons and to all the people of Israel and say to them, This is the the thing that the Lord has commanded. If anyone of the house of Israel kills an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp or kills it outside the camp, 
and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it as a gift to the Lord in front of the tabernacle of the Lord, blood guilt shall be imputed to that man. He has shed blood, and that man shall be cut off from among his people. This is to the end that the people of Israel may bring their sacrifice, uh, that they sacrifice in the open field, that they may bring them to the Lord, to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and sacrifice them as sacrifices of peace offerings to the Lord. And the priest shall throw the blood on the altar in the Lord um, of the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting and burn the fat for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So they like bacon just like we do. So they, just kidding, that's a joke. They didn't eat pigs, just FYI. Never mind, all right. <laughs> so they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons after whom they whore. This shall be a statute forever for them through their generations. So this is kind of interesting, isn't it? This is a little bit odd we read this about goat demons and, and we see this thing about they're supposed to always bring it to the tabernacle. You see, before they were about to embark into the wilderness, God gave Moses this set of commands that required them to perform the slaughter of animals at the tabernacle and nowhere else. You had to bring the animal to the tabernacle. Now let's look at why these reasons were. And I might be losing you, but stick with me because this is hugely important as we get into Deuteronomy 12. The first thing is that God had specific laws around the killing of sacrificial animals at the temple so that it was as humane and quick as possible. Guys, one of the things that we don't understand in our day and age because we go get chicken or beef at the store is most of us don't even want to know what kind of accommodations they were killed under, right? And we turn a blind eye to the fact that there is injustice going on. Now you might think, Hans, only in Portland would somebody be talking about this. What is this, Portlandia? You're worried about the animals? Yes, because God is, right? Kosher law dictated that you could not strangle an animal because it was inhumane. They had to take a knife and they had to slit its throat and quickly drain out its blood because it was the most humane way possible in those days to kill an animal. They had the laws so that somebody couldn't go out and bludgeon an animal to death because God cares even for the birds of the air. Do we have an understanding of that? Do we? Or have we become callous to that idea? Secondly, this was not a rich culture. And most people did not have livestock to spare, and so the majority of their large livestock would have been used for labor, not consumed. So from this, we know that killing a large sacrificial-sized animal would have been an event somewhat few and far between. Really, only, on the, only the extremely wealthy could afford taking one of their labor animals and sacrificing them for slaughter. And so when they did, it was going to be a massive party, a celebratory event for the whole community. And usually, because it was a wealthy person giving of this animal, those who were a little bit less wealthy, they would have huge understanding of the generosity of that person. It was a communal understanding of their wealth together. Third, there was no refrigeration and very little meat preservation practices. And so large animals had to be consumed somewhat immediately after slaughter, and they had to be consumed by lots of people or else the meat would go bad. So if one person killed an ox, let's say out in the field, it would have been a waste of meat because the meat would have gone bad before anyone could eat it. So animals were brought to the tabernacle, sacrificed, and offered in a celebratory communal meal so that it was used in full. It was stewarded well. The people ate with the Levitical priests, caring for one another and caring for those that served within the tabernacle on their behalf. And finally, and perhaps most importantly, animals were to be brought to the tabernacle for sacrifice because in so doing, 
The Israelite was performing sacrifice to Yahweh and Yahweh alone above all other gods, including Baal and the various demonic beings, which are represented by this weird statement, the goat demons, right? They were sacrificing to Yahweh. So when Leviticus 17 states clearly that a person who does not follow these rules should be cut off, it's not just an arbitrary ruling. To kill an animal in this context, outside the camp, had connotations of a dismissal of the importance of life and the storyline of God's redemptive plan. It had a refusal to note the divine implications of death. It had a selfishness that did not allow the communal sharing of the sacrificed meat. And it had an appearance that it was done not to the praise and worship of Yahweh, but potentially to a pagan god. You see the reasoning behind this and why it was so important. And so the long and short of God's command as Israel went into the desert was, do not ever sacrifice anywhere other than in the tabernacle. So, when they show up in Deuteronomy 12 on the east side of the Jordan, you can imagine that they were probably a bit confused. And Moses stands up and says, when the Lord your God enlarges your territory as he has promised you, and you say, I will eat meat because you crave meat, you may eat meat wherever you desire. Huh? See how important it is to understand the biblical storyline? This would be completely boring and probably is slightly to some of you who are dozing off right now. Still boring, but at least makes sense understanding the biblical storyline. So why then, here in Deuteronomy 12, does God seem to change his mind? In fact, Deuteronomy 12 and Leviticus 17 are often used by opponents of the Bible to show seemingly contradictory evidence that the Bible is a waste of time, right? Now, why would God seem to contradict himself? Well, I want to submit to you that there's a very simple explanation. Here in Deuteronomy, there was a new issue to tackle. What happens when the land in which we dwell expands and we are not all living directly around the tabernacle as we've been doing for the last 40 years in our tents? What do we do? You see, the place in which Israel would set up its temple to Yahweh was now going to be, in some cases, three days away of travel. And an animal in those days that you slaughtered wouldn't last that long. And so when you live that far away from the place where sin offering and sacrifice is performed, you have to make special trips which would take away from your working of the fields and potentially starve your family to death. So rather than God saying, nope, you got to keep this rule and potentially starve to death, I don't care, I told you, so you need to be quiet and obey. Rather than doing that, he took it into consideration. And in this case, because of the practical concerns, God shows his grace and mercy and compassion to his people and says, I understand your new circumstance. And even though my character hasn't changed, I'm going to adjust my law so that you can still be in relationship with me. And he keeps pieces of the truth of his character in this, but he adjusts the law and yet holds true to his character. Go back to Deuteronomy 12 if you've left it there and take a look at Deuteronomy 12 again. And look with me at verses 17 and verse 26. Verse 17 it says, You may not eat within your towns the tithe of your grain or of your wine or of your oil or any vow offerings, etc., etc. And look at verse 26. It says there the same thing. He repeats it twice. But the holy things that are due from you and your vow offerings you shall take and you shall go to the place that the Lord will choose. Notice that he still maintains the generosity of the people for the Levites. In verse 19, take care that you do not neglect the Levite as long as you live in your land. 
In verse 21, he says, still make it a communal meal in your towns. He keeps the same characteristic pieces in place. Community. Care for the Levitical priests who don't have any other form of income. Making sure that you go on a regular basis to the temple to give your vow offerings in reverence to the Lord. But on a general day-to-day basis, he adjusts his law so that a person can still be in connection with him and yet still follow the practice of sacrificing appropriately. He maintains the same principles of generosity, solemnness, reverence, and celebration. The one thing he does is adjust it so that people won't have to literally and figuratively kill themselves going all the way to the tabernacle every time they wanted to eat meat. He shows his mercy and his grace. And that is missed if we don't read our Bibles. That is missed if we don't understand that every piece of Scripture is useful for understanding the character of our God. Dear church, the God that you and I serve is a God of mercy and grace. He is not a tyrant laying down random laws to control us like rats in a maze. He is a compassionate God who gives us commands for our good, fully knowing our circumstances and caring for us in the midst. No matter what you are going through, brother or sister, God knows your circumstances and he desires to help you through it. He desires to be with you in the midst of those circumstances and maintain relationship with you for his glory and for your good. Understanding the law of God requires us to know God's character and see the laws through that lens. And if we can do it here in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, well, we can now understand it in Romans when he says you don't need to circumcise anymore. God, why would you change your law? Well, because there's a new circumstance. Gentiles are now part of his church. And his character is the same, but he's adjusted the law in order to reach the most people possible. Now, this taken too far, outside of Scripture, we can go completely off the rails. Well, God just adjusts everything all the time. No, not true. It has to be in the bounds of Scripture. So we have to understand the fullness of the Scriptural account, and we have to understand the character of God. Well, third, Understanding the law requires that we look forward to its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. If you divorce the law from what the law points to, then it is just a bunch of silly rules. But this people of the ancient Near East were heavily symbolic. And everything in the law points forward to its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Remember what I said earlier about the two wrong directions to take the law. Pelagianism is to take the law of Deuteronomy 12 and turn it into an external law that will somehow allow us to choose obedience to God. Antinomianism is to read it and believe because we're under the grace of Christ that we no longer need to heed its message. But by casting aside the command upon God's people, we're actually casting aside the importance of Christ. You see, in the Gospel of Matthew, the author is clear that these laws did not go away with the first advent of Christ. In fact, these commands of the law held such weight with Christ that he came to fulfill them. Look at what Matthew says in Matthew 5.17. He quoted Jesus as saying, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus was not an antinomian. Jesus did not say, cast aside the law. He said, in fact, I'm going to fulfill it. And he required his disciples 
to walk in those pieces of the commands of the law that he himself did not fulfill by his sacrifice. And so now the passage read earlier by Kelly comes into our view. Let's go ahead and turn there now. Turn out of the Old Testament into the New. You'll probably breathe a big sigh of relief for a second. And go to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Great, Hans, you took us from the hardest to read books in the Old Testament to the hardest to read book in the New Testament. Now, Hebrews is actually quite easy to read. Hebrews 10. Take a look there again at verses 1 through 4 that Kelly read to us earlier. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. See what it says there? It says the same thing we've been talking about. That the sacrifices, the sacrificial system was to paint a story, to look forward to the shadow, that they were a shadow of the things that were to come, the true reality. The author of Hebrews is reminding us that this is the point. It's pointing forward to the true reality of Christ. And these sacrifices are a reminder of our sins and the need for someone to come and truly cleanse us. And this is the meaning of all Scripture. That's why in verse 7, Jesus says, uh, he quotes Jesus speaking of himself in the midst of the book, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. The whole Bible points to the atoning work of Christ, including Leviticus and Deuteronomy, including the law. The law wasn't done away with in order that Christ might be known. It was given to us, point blank, in the face, so that Christ might be known. And all these sacrifices, merely shadows of the true reality that was to come, these, in a sense, pass away simply because they've been fulfilled in Christ. Look at verse 11 there. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. In our text from Deuteronomy, we are given a foretaste of the church in a massive way. In a sense, we, the church, are separated from the fullness of our heavenly temple. Yes, the temple is the church, as we talked about last week, but the fullness of the renewed heaven and earth is not yet here. That's why we are considered aliens in a foreign land. And it's too far for us to make the journey on our own. We need God's help by His gracious compassion. And so what He has done for each of us in our small towns far away from the true temple is He has granted us the ability to celebrate the sacrifice in the midst of our community in our own town. And so here on this Lord's Day, we gather together, as do our brothers and sisters in Burkina and in Haiti and in Mexico, Across Latin America, in Russia, brothers and sisters, far from the redeemed temple of God, the renewed heaven and earth, gather together to feast on the communal meal of the sacrifice provided by God. Feasting on the symbolic body and blood of Christ. The blood of the new covenant given once for all that we might be brought to glory in Christ is symbolized by that cup that we drink. Jesus gave his body so that we 
might have a cleansing sacrifice that allows us to step into full reconciliation with the Father. And so for you, whether you have already been cleansed by the blood of Christ by accepting his sacrifice by faith, or whether you are here today and have walked in this morning feeling impure, feeling ashamed, feeling unforgiven, either way, either way this sacrifice is open for you. It's open for you to step into communion with Christ and with his people. To say right where you sit right now, Father, I admit that I am unclean. That my sin requires death. But because of what you have done in giving your son to die for me, I accept your sacrifice and I plead it by faith. I plead the blood of Jesus by faith and I want relationship with you, Father God. You can do that right where you sit right now. And then come to the table of communion during worship and take of the body and the blood represented by the cup and the piece of bread. And you can take part in this sacrifice. And we invite you to do that, to be part of his people with us. If you're a person who today is the first day where you want to step into that, or maybe it's been a long time and you feel like, man, I need to dedicate my life to the Lord, then I want you to come back and speak with myself or any of the leadership that's in the back to accept Christ and to walk with him. We'd love to tell you what it means to do that in further detail. And I'd love to take communion with you and explain what it is to be his disciple. Well, I hope that in looking at this, we can see that understanding the law is to look forward to its fulfillment in Christ. And so now this morning that we have a better grasp on how to understand the law of God, to look at the whole biblical biblical story, to understand the character of God, as well as to look forward to Jesus Christ, let's finish this morning with how we apply the law. Once we've looked at it and understand it a bit better, how do we apply the law to the here and now of 2019? That's what we'll finish with this morning, is applying the law requires us to find the principal truth behind it. If we don't apply the law in the direction of Pelagianism nor antinomianism, then how do we apply it? Well, using the first three points to understand the law, we can then begin to uncover the principle behind it. And so for today, we can walk away with a few principal truths. Let me just give them to you. You can write them down as they strike you. First, the principal truth is that it requires that we rest upon the sacrificial work of Jesus Christ for our salvation. Once you understand the fullness of the law, you will recognize, as I do, that you can't keep it. You can't. You'll recognize that your heart is too dark. Let's just take the base principles of chapter 12 from today. It speaks to a humility and repentance for the effects of our sin. How many of us would be knocked out right there? How often do we forget the effects of our sin and walk in arrogance instead of humility as if our sin were nothing? Chapter 12 speaks to a generosity amongst the people of God. And yet how often am I, how often are you greedy and selfish in the midst of God's people? Right there, we'd get kicked out. The law requires that we look to Christ and accept his fulfillment of the law in our place as our substitute because we can't keep it. If you have not accepted Christ as your Lord, Savior, and King, then you are stuck in the fact that you have been judged guilty by the law of God as a sinner that's in need of a Savior. And today is the day for you to admit that and to say, yes, I need that salvation. So today you can submit your life to the loving and compassionate Father God that we've discussed. The one that cares for his people and knows their circumstances. Well, not only do we need Jesus Christ, do we need to look to him and the sacrificial work on the cross. But secondly, we can apply this text because our text today helps us to recognize that God is compassionate. 
and he understands your situation. And if you are his child, he is with you in the midst of every circumstance, regardless of whether it is good or bad. The Lord will meet you where you're at, just as God did not rigidly hold to the command he gave in Leviticus 17. But he understood the situation of the Israelites as they spread throughout the land in the same way he knows your situation. Maybe you're sitting here today going, man, I wish somebody knew the depth of my depravity. I wish somebody knew what I was stuck in. Maybe you're a person who you just want someone to understand your shame. Well, the Lord searches you and knows you and he's with you in the midst of that. He calls out for you to take your burdens and struggles to him. 1 Peter 5, 6-7 says, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Unfortunately, I think sometimes we hear the biblical phrase, be anxious for nothing, as condemnation. Well, we need to balance it with the fact that when you are anxious, the Lord wants to hear of your anxieties. He wants to care for you. Brothers and sisters of Mission Fellowship, we serve a God of compassion who loves His kids and wants to know what's going on. Third, we can look at the law in our section today and realize that God's compassion is not licensed to do whatever we want. His compassion requires a response of prioritizing our lives for the purpose of His worship. And so here, even with the concession, God says, you can sacrifice the animal in your hometown, but you still need to prioritize the worship through your tithe, through your vow, through your free will offerings and your contributions to the tabernacle. Do not confuse God's grace with a license to become apathetic or to engage in blatant sin. Give Him what is due to His name, the best of your time, talents, treasure, and praise. Lastly, if you were a person who was sitting here today thinking to yourself, man, you covered a lot of Scripture How did he get to know the story of Scripture and how it all fits together? How did he do that? Did he have to go to seminary? Well, dear brothers and sisters, there is one answer. I read, and I read, and I read, and I read. And then I became a pastor. And I read, and I read, and I read, and I read, and I studied, and I studied, and I studied. Read God's Word. Do not expect me or the rest of our leadership to be the ones that read for you. We are not your cliff notes on the Bible. Read the Word. Immerse yourself in the Word. And when it comes time in your biblical reading plan to cover Leviticus, don't zone out for a month. Keep reading. Read God's Word. Not to gain His favor, but because He was loving enough and gracious enough to give you His truth. Just because it seems boring to you when you half-heartedly read a section out of context does not mean it's actually boring. Read it again and again and again, and you will begin to see the amazing depth of God's Word, even to the point where you can read Deuteronomy 12 and rejoice at God's graciousness in the midst of it. And I hope, as we continue through the next 15 chapters, looking at some of these laws, for example, why on earth did God say don't boil a a child goat in its mother's milk. How do I read that one? How does that apply to my life in 2019? I hope as we read through some of these laws that you will see the amazing beauty that can be found within the law of God. And I hope today starts to grease those skids a little bit to help you guys understand what it is to read, to understand, and to apply God's law.
So as we prepare our hearts to worship the Lord and to remember his sacrifice through the symbols of the bread and the cup, I want us to begin with a few questions directly out of the New City Catechism that we use to teach our children the basics of systematic theology here at this church. And so we'll begin with those. You've done this before. You can put away your Bible and your notebook. The way we do this, as worship team, you guys go ahead and come on up and get ready. The way that we do this as a church is I just simply ask the question at the top, and then you guys repeat together the bottom. And you might think, why do we do this? This seems kind of cult-like. Well, guys, this is a, this is a tradition in the Orthodox Church of God since the beginning of the church. You've heard of the Apostles' Creed. You've heard of catechism. Catechism is a fancy word that means teaching. It's how we teach our children, and it's how we teach one another. So we're just going to do three of them, questions 13, 14, and 15, if you're in the midst of the catechism yourself with your kids. And here's the first one. Can anyone keep the law of God perfectly? Go ahead and respond with, since the fall, no mere human has been able to keep the law of God perfectly, but consistently breaks it in thought, word, and deed. Did God create us unable to keep his law? No, but because of the disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, all of creation is fallen. We are all born in sin and guilt, corrupt in our nature, and unable to keep God's law. Since no one can keep the law, what is its purpose? That we may know the holy nature and will of God and the sinful nature and disobedience of our hearts and thus our need of a Savior. The law also teaches and exhorts us to live a life worthy of our Savior. If you're here today and this is the first time that you've ever dove into the the law of God, I hope that what you see is that the law of God is profitable. That yeah, it might be a little bit tougher to chew on, right? Mm -hmm. It might be that piece of meat that's a little bit, takes a little bit more time to chew. But the reality is, is that we can gain huge application out of the midst of his law. So I pray that as we jump into the rest of the law in Deuteronomy, that we become a people that again has a blissful expectation that we don't leave and go, oh man, I think we're in chapter 13 of Deuteronomy today. Let's see, how many more are there? But instead we come to the Lord's word and we say, what are we going to learn today? What are we going to learn from his law? And what have we uh, not uncovered that will help us understand the graciousness of our God, the mercy of our God? And the fact that Jesus is the perfect answer to fulfill all of these laws. And from his sacrifice, we can then step into obedience, walking in that same compassion and mercy towards one another and towards our neighbors in our community. And by reading the word of the Lord, by reading the law of God, we will become more and more like him. Even if we're not sitting in tents, pouring out blood on the ground and doing the exact things that are spoken of in Deuteronomy 12. So I hope that today you've been edified by the law of the Lord. And I pray that as we worship, that we give him his due, just like it says in Deuteronomy 12. Don't forget that the compassion of the Lord doesn't allow apathy, that we need to respond in full zeal, loving the Lord for what he's done and giving him what's due his name.